0: Welcome to the Business of Winning podcast brought to you by Performance Insights, the leading agency with access to the very best talent in motorsport, providing expert speakers, moderators and hosts from the world of Formula One.
1: People, Uh, you've got to have good people, haven't you? And, uh, you know, having uh, groups of talented individuals that uh, have a willingness to work together is what creates a great team.
0: I'm Diana Binks and alongside me is Mark Gallagher. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome someone I know you have worked closely with Mark for over a decade and who I've also had the pleasure of hosting and moderating events with. It's none other than David Coulthard or DC to his friends, a 13 times Grand Prix winner, a driver who finished in the top three in the Formula One World Championship on no fewer than five occasions, scoring 62 podium finishes and driving for teams that have won a total of 49 World Championship titles between them. For your names, of course, Williams, McLaren and Red Bull Racing.
2: Yeah, and he's also one of the very busiest people I know, because if you think his Formula One career was demanding, he's of course equally known for his broadcasting career as part of Channel 4's Formula One lineup in the UK. He's a brand ambassador for a number of well-known companies, and is of course currently president of the British Racing Drivers Club, no less, and can be still seen driving Red Bull's Formula One cars at demonstration events all over the world. And on top of all of that, he also has a range of successful business interests, including Whisper, one of Europe's fastest growing and BAFTA award winning media production companies.
0: So, David, great to have you on the show today. Um, bit of a, a bit of a welcome there, I think, don't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was just sitting patiently, um, uh, being reminded of what seems all like a lot of things from the distant past. And as Mark knows, uh, and uh, Dan, as you have experienced as well through your own career, people involved in sports and motorsports generally don't tend to look back or think back. You know, it's all about the future it's all about the next opportunity so yeah I enjoyed that brief moment of being reminded I used to be a Grand Prix driver.
0: (laughs) Well David over the the last decade and a half we've seen Formula One um, dominated really by two teams Mercedes and Red Bull two very different brands of course and both seem to have found that magic, magic formula success in Formula One. What do you think the common factors are?
1: Uh, People. Uh, You've got to have good people, haven't you? And, uh, you know, having uh, groups of talented individuals that uh, have a willingness to work together is what creates a great team. And there's many examples of uh, large and successful businesses that have taken their eye off the ball, stopped innovating, and ultimately they've no longer retained their position as uh, global leaders. So I think that the wonderful thing about sport, Formula One specifically, and the teams that you've already mentioned, is they have an ability to keep reinventing themselves it doesn't mean they always get it right of course because you're dealing with very very small margins the difference between success and failure i think perfectly demonstrated by uh most recent qualifying in formula one where around a six kilometer street circuit in singapore the top three were separated by seven hundredths of a second you know i think the uh top three in the 100-meter sprint final are are a greater distance apart than that. And it's just remarkable when you consider that you've got, you know, those individual teams and drivers are represented by, you know, a thousand or so staff designing and building a race car in different factories in different countries in the case of, of Ferrari to most of the Formula One teams based in the UK with different nationalities of drivers who then pedal them around the racetrack with the only common part really being the tyres. To be that close I think shows uh, what elite sport brings out of all of these companies and the difference between success and failure, although very visible in terms of
2: championship points and podiums, is a tiny, tiny margins. So David, that leads me kind of perfectly on to the fact that You drove for three different teams. You drove for Williams, you raced for Williams, you raced for McLaren, you raced for Red Bull during the course of your 15-year career. And I'm kind of wondering, was there something that each of them did very similarly or were they actually very different? Were there clear differences in the management and the culture of those teams? There's no question
1: that the personalities of the individuals in senior management, of course, they have different you know, different ages, and in many cases, you know, Ron Dennis at McLaren or Sir Frank Williams uh, were were significantly older than than I was, uh, you know, a good twenty five years or so. Uh, whereas in the last team you mentioned, Rebel Racing, you know, I was actually older uh, and and still am older than Christian Horner, the team principal, who's just approaching his fiftieth birthday so of course with different generations you've got different uh, backgrounds and management styles because they've grown up in different eras but the singular focus is their understanding that they can do it on their own and no amount of sort of dictorial uh, instructions or behavior can can inspire creatives to to want to get their thinking caps on and and deliver uh, performance which ultimately you know this is a game of uh, of engineering um, performance. You, you've got to have, you know, y- unique ideas. Each of the teams control and have to deliver their own IP to the racetrack. So you have a design studio with, led by a technical director who create these incredible pieces of engineering art. And then when they take to the racetrack, they have to be operated as super efficiently. And I think best displayed by the just over two second pit stop for four wheels and a tires. You know, in the digital world, it's a very analog. Uh, example of what human endeavor can achieve if you're really focused on delivering. So, really, it's a perfect example of, irrespective of those individuals and the names above the door, the the ultimate goal and therefore the creative process and the delivery process is very similar. I, and I never drove for a, uh, a non UK based team, but I have to assume it would be the same with Ferrari and uh, Sauber, Alfa Romeo, and uh, Alfa Tauri, uh, and in this modern sport, uh, they're international teams anyway, they may have uh, team principals that are British or Austrian or French, but the reality is that the actual teams are made up of multinational, multicultural people.
0: And David, one of the sort of common ingredients in all three of the teams that you raced for was, of course, Adrian Newey, who's the Chief Technical Officer of Red Bull Racing. What is it about his approach and, and style of leadership, do you think, that really unlocks so much performance for everyone?
1: Adrian, for anyone who's met him, will know that his particular personality, he's hes more introvert than extrovert. He's, he's more, um, you know quiet in his, his approach. You know, the angriest I think I've ever seen Adrian in all those years that I worked with him was maybe putting his pencil very firmly down on his notepad <laughs> during a discussion. You know, he, he you know, writes and designs in, in pencil and therefore he wouldn't want to break the lead. Um, so he's a very mild-mannered individual. Uh, that said, he can make his point without being a sort of desk slammer um, he can make his point without raising his voice. And I think that one of the things that I'm so impressed by Adrian as a as a creative leader is his open door policy to his office. And by that, I mean, literally the door is never closed to the design office. If he's got something private, then he'll go somewhere else to discuss that if it's a personal mm-hmm. private matter. But is it, if it's of an engineering design, you know, greater good of the, the his work ultimately, his door is open and anyone can walk in there, whether they are newly, uh, you know, new draftsmen or women that have just joined, um, or whether they are, you know, existing talents that have been part of the, the family for many years. There's no such thing as a silly question in his book. Uh, if you ask the same question twice, probably he would then consider that silly. But the, my point being, he he's open to be challenged. And anyone who, who's listening to this who watches Formula One and is familiar with Adrian, then name me any other uh, technical officer, uh, designer that you see on the grid walking with a notepad and pencil, looking at the opposition ahead of the start of a Grand Prix. He does that mainly, of course, to get up close and personal to his competition and to see with his own eye, rather than through photographs, what the design concepts and you know aerodynamic uh, styling that they've got on their car and it's in an environment where he couldn't walk into the garage one it wouldn't be allowed and two it would be downright rude um, but to do it when you're about to start a grand prix is absolutely fair game and he's not too proud and not embarrassed to go and look at Haas Williams I'm starting at the the traditional let's say those that have been running uh, at the back of the the constructors' championship all the way through to
2: you know Mercedes and Ferrari so david adrian was Uh, chief designer at Williams and has at the time of Ayrton Senna's fatal accident back in 1994. And he's talked about that as being one of the darkest moments of, of his career. And yet you were the driver subsequently drafted in by Williams to replace Ayrton, start your full-time career as a formula one race car driver. Can you, can you speak to us about your acceptance of risk and the way in which perhaps that changed, the approach to risk, how did that change during the course of your 15 year career in Formula One? Because so many people think of Formula One as being inherently dangerous. Well,
1: that is a uh, fair observation based on the sport as a whole, over its, its many decades of Formula One existing. But hey, life is dangerous. You know, over the, the the however many hundreds of thousands of years, you know, we, we've been roaming the earth in various forms. It all leads to the end, the same same uh, conclusion. So I, as you know, Mark, consider myself risk averse. I'm not a risk taker. I, I don't ever jump before I I look. I very much believe in a scientific approach to understanding what the challenge is and maybe to my own detriment uh, ultimately in, in ultimate success in formula one, my analysis of, you know, trying to achieve the the ultimate balance and performance from the car, sometimes clouded just getting on and, and driving the car. You know, I always enjoy very much testing with engineers, working on the development of cars and, and, and that whole process of discovery. Um, And I think that led to a relatively long career and a relatively consistent career, if not, you know, speaking to you as a a former world champion. But all of that said, I think that, uh, you know, risk when you've done no analysis, that's high. Risk when you have a scientific approach to me is about weighing up the options and uh, trusting in your team, trusting in the designers, trusting in the engineers that develop these cars, deliver the new part to the, the actual ga- uh, to the garage to the circuit and then enable you to go out and try and deliver a laptop
0: and david one of the other things was um, that took place during your career of course quite literally was the ability to improve Decision making with the arrival of the vast amount of data that became um, the the thing that you did. Could you talk to us now about being a da- being a data driven sport? And can you explain a little bit how that sort of really transformed all the important outcomes from safety to to quality to reliability?
1: Yeah, well, the, the reality, of course, is data has has always been a part of the world we live in, and certainly the sport that I've you know loved to be be part of. But of course, in the early days, that data was very much someone with a clipboard and a pencil writing down the information that was presented to him by the driver. So the driver was literally the voice of the car as data and the ability to to harness that information to tell us exactly what the car is doing in terms of ride heights, aerodynamic loads, engine performance, engine temperatures, all of those sorts of things that literally tell us uh, the overall uh, performance of the car then data has become an ever-growing part of, of how we develop these cars in the virtual world. And a lot of the, by way of example, a lot of the cars nowadays are conceived using CFD, uh, computation, computational fluid dynamics, rather than traditional wind tunnels. Wind tunnels still play a part, but with rapid prototyping nowadays, the ability for teams to have an idea, have that physically in their hand as a as a living part that then can then be understood in the uh, either in the virtual world or in the wind tunnel is all because of our ability to harness data and you know there's thousands of channels of logging that are going on telling us that everything's basically okay but of course your, your real source of Uh, potential for uh, problem solving and development is where you get the little bits of data that tell you something's not quite right, or it isn't quite performing in a way that it was intended. And then that becomes your growth uh, opportunity.
2: Um, Dixie, there's always been uh, quite a debate, particularly on social media amongst Formula One fans, but also uh, across mainstream media about that that terrible expression, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. in terms of in terms of racing drivers, but the thing is, you've worked with some of the very greats in the early part of your career. I'm talking about Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, and then more and more recent times, you've gotten to know through interviewing and working with the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Fernando Alonso. So the question I have for you is: How do you think the driving challenge differs today from past decades? Um, what's your own view on how we can determine Formula One's great talent?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, when you mention GOAT, it reminds me of uh, another uh, conversation I was having during my Formula One broadcast, where I raised the question that I get the acronym. I just don't think, with the greatest respect to goats, that it really is kind of, you know, a a powerful enough animal that it it should be used. Uh, You know, it should be a lion or a silverback, you know, guerrilla or something really powerful and dominant. But anyway, um, um, to answer your question, you know, my belief is that talent is talent irrespective of the period. And you can see that very well uh, in like music, you know, the great composers, your Beethovens, your Mozarts and whoever, right through to whoever their equivalents are uh, in, in modern times. So, I have this very simple belief that if you took the greatest soccer players, the greatest racing drivers, tennis players, whatever it happens to be, you know, the brilliant men and women that have achieved so much in their own personal journeys, if they were given their opportunity at this period in time with the modern physical and and, and mental science that we have, their talent would still put them at the very forefront. And then we'd have this, Super league of, of superhumans because sport is not about finding good because they're all good. It's about finding exceptional and in every generation there's exceptional talents that stand out and are high achievers and continually are able to to bring home the uh, the gold medals or the world championships.
0: And David, when you stepped back from racing in Formula One and started your own businesses, particularly Whisper, which has just gone on to be such a, a great success in many dis- different sporting disciplines, what were the learnings from Formula One that you applied to the to the outset, you know, when you had that idea to come up with that business model?
1: Well, sport, and in my case, Formula One, was absolutely the backbone of how we and with my my two partners jake humphrey sinul patel how we envisaged operating the business and by that what i mean is uh, to have the the uh, desire to be number one in the world and that's still our goal is to be the biggest sports production business in the world it seems quite a quite a you know lofty target when, when we were conceiving the idea but you know if you do not have a, a high goal then you you just won't aspire to really high standards and uh you know the the simple things that sport teaches which is bring a good group of individuals together who have a willingness to work together that's a team and if you have a great team you already have a competitive uh, chance against whoever else is out there on the market could many people have great individuals within a company not all always do they manage to get them to be joined up and aligned and to truly have each other's backs that's what people have on the field of play, whether it's an individual sport with the team of people that are behind them, or, you know, as we speak, the Rugby World Cup's going on right now. You know, a perfect example of you have to have a, a truly united team, people that are prepared to run back and fill in gaps in the line if, if somebody's, um, you know, a man's down, uh, somebody's injured, or whatever it happens to be. That is what gives a winning uh, team mentality. And, and it may seem a bit extreme, to, to want to take that into the office. But I don't see it that way. Why, why is it extreme? It's more than within our capabilities as human beings. And what gave me the confidence to be involved is, I, involved is the following, that as a Grand Prix driver, I knew nothing about designing and building a racing car, literally nothing. But I knew how to drive it, and I knew how to critique it. So, I had a role within that incredible engineering company. And likewise, in television production, yes, I've worked for 15 seasons now in broadcasting, but I wouldn't claim to really know about broadcasting. But thankfully, my team are all experts in what they do. And thankfully, they all understand the whisper way is that all hands on deck when we need to be on deck. And, you know, we all work to cover each other to make sure that, you know, there's no gaps, there's no cracks. And that's what. I think, drives us forward to want to to deliver great uh, quality coverage. And, of course, the honesty is that we won't always get it right and we won't always be perfect um, because it's simply uh, arrogance or stupidity to think that would be the case. And, again, sport teaches us that. Nobody dominates for decades. They may dominate for a few years, but it's true as whoever's winning in football right now or whoever's winning in Formula One right now The chances of them still being in that same situation in several years, highly unlikely. And that's where companies that have been world leaders in the past have failed because they thought they were too big and too good to fail. And then they stop innovating. They start developing arrogance. They stop plugging the gaps. They start going, that's not my job. That's someone else's job. The blame culture starts and the whole thing starts falling apart. And as Mark knows well, and we talk about very often when we, when we're in front of uh, delegates, in Formula One, in sports, there isn't a blame culture, there's a responsibility culture. People put their hand up when they make a mistake because they're empowered to be able to do so without fear of you know a ton of bricks coming down on top of them. If you keep making the same mistake over and over, then your own self-worth, your own you know common sense should make you realize you're probably not in the right role the, the, you know therefore, you know people should have the confidence if they made one or two mistakes to to step forward and reach out to their team, explain why they made them and and seek help from their team to be better and be a great team member and if you can build that culture within your company you've you've got an advantage over the majority
2: um it's really interesting d c as you you and I both know when we speak to a lot of companies they're going through change and transformation, and they very often talk about. Uh, the, the turbulence that's going on in the world. Formula One itself has gone through a period of unprecedented growth, and that seems set to continue. How do you see Formula One being able to adapt and evolve further, for example, during the current decade, which is a decade when the world's talking about decarbonization, and Formula One itself has got this Net zero carbon target for 2030. So even within Formula One itself, we're seeing huge transformation. So how do you, how do you see that evolving for the sport in the current decade? If you look at the learnings
1: from COVID, Formula One was one of the first sports, if not the first sport on an international level, to be up and operational in a very short order. They saw the issues found solutions and delivered their uh, contractual obligations to the TV broadcasters by delivering Grand Prix's in locations that were deemed safe and sensible to be able to have the the sport continue without fans, of course, at that stage, but for delivering for fans. And it was a absolute textbook example of achieving success and uh, continuing the show through adversity. Formula One will meet its targets, undoubtedly where many others, including government, uh, continue to not hit their targets because the sport has immovable targets. The start of Grand Prix's happen at a fixed time. They do not delay them other than for extreme weather conditions. That is the only way a Grand Prix wouldn't start. Therefore, all the Grand Prix teams design and build and deliver their car all over the world, and they put it on the grid ready for the race to start. When the FIA, our governing body, stipulated higher standards in crash tests after the tragedies of 94 and various other landmark moments where they've had to upgrade the safety standards, the engineers go, we don't know how to do that. That's the first reaction. That's perfect, because Formula One engineers, once they bounce back from that brief moment of we don't know how to do that, they set about finding solutions. Using modern technology, developing new technologies, and delivering on whatever the standards have been set. Therefore, Formula One is a world leader, and I would say this as a fan of the sport, as someone who's competed. But as you know, Mark, it, it has continually met targets. It drives innovation for the automotive sector. It will drive innovation for the aviation sector. You know, sustainable fuels and uh, you know the biofuels that we are using in part today in Formula One are accelerating the development of that for the aviation industry, where they have no option to go electric. It simply wouldn't be possible for electrification in long-haul aircraft. So they have to find biofuels, sustainable fuels for the future. So I can proudly say, as a member of the Formula One community, we not only uh, deliver entertainment as a sport, but we find global solutions to the issues that we all have to deal with today.
0: David, it's been fantastic talking to you today. We'd really appreciate you taking the the time out from your busy schedule to have a chat. Very interesting, as always. And uh, we we thank you very much. Thank you. So, Mark, that was absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's really easy to forget just how much DC has done during the course of his career. He's done an awful lot more than just racing.
2: Yeah, he really is one of the few drivers to have made a seamless transition from being a racing driver, into broadcasting, and then also to balance that with his wide range of business interests and particularly the success of of Whisper. Um, He's so passionate about the sport and, of course, still involved in so many aspects of Formula One today. And I think that's one of the reasons why he makes such a good speaker on really any topic to do with the business in the fast-changing and dynamic sport of F1.
0: Great talking to you as ever, Mark, of course, and obviously fantastic to have the guests that we're, we're, we're getting on here. It's a privilege to actually hear what they're saying, and we can certainly all learn from everything that we're hearing on our podcasts. The Business of Winning podcast is brought to you by Performance Insights, specialists in matching leading talents from across the Formula One sports industry with corporate events worldwide. Visit www.performanceinsights.co.uk for more details.